You know, there's no shortage of television shows that exploit the tendency that people have to accumulate things, right? <clears throat> uh, anybody ever watched an episode of Hoarders? <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's uh, a show sometimes as terrible as it sounds, you watch it and you don't feel so bad about yourself anymore, right? You're like, wow, there's some people with uh, some major problems. Another, another show that my wife and I like to watch is American Pickers. Uh, you know, the, they go out and pick through people's stuff. We joke all the time that Candace's grandparents will wind up on that show at some point because they literally have barns full of things. Um, and then Tiny House Nation is another one that kind of dives into that because these people want to go tiny, right? They want to live in a shed. <laughs> There's no way that I'm, I'm, I love the idea of that, but I got way too many kids to make that happen. It's not happening. Um, but you, you watch in each episode of that, they go through and they try to pare down is what they call it. They do the pare down and you get rid of all your junk so you can go live in this little, you know, 10 by 10 closet, right? That's what they're trying to do. And it's this idea of accumulating all this stuff and eventually you want to get rid of it. And if we're honest, we all accumulate a ton of things. I mean, I collect a bunch of stuff. My wife likes to collect things. We all do that. I call my daughter Zoe a pack rat. She's all the time got something that she is like assembling a little collection of. <coughs> Uh, but we all accumulate things, and accumulation can be a surprising and sometimes sad thing to observe, especially if you watch the show Hoarders. But I got to thinking as I was studying this passage about the accumulation of sin in our life. Have you ever stopped to consider the accumulation of your sins, of your transgressions against God? And how do you deal with all of that baggage? How do, you, how do you offload that? Where, where do you go with all the junk in your life that uh, comes from sin? How do you deal with that guilt? You know, listen, our only hope is the mercy of Jesus. When it comes to talking about sin, when it comes to talking about the weight of that, our only hope is Jesus. And we're thankful today that, uh, as I've heard put before, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Even on our worst days, Jesus has more grace. And that's something that we can, can uh, rejoice in today. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So God is willing to forgive. And our passage of study today is a good word for all of us sinners here today. Because that's what we are. Everybody here is a sinner. Welcome to church, right? That's a, that's a real uh, welcoming way to say, it's like, you're calling me a sinner? Yeah, we all are. We all got our problems, right? And if you feel burned out in your faith this morning, if you feel distant from God, then allow the truth of this passage to minister to your heart today. That's what I've been trying to do all week long as I've walked in this study. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people of Israel realize that they have some unfinished business to attend to with God. Now, we just saw in the previous passage that they have had the word read to them. They've been in this time of rejoicing. They've been in this time of celebrating festivals. They haven't done that since the time of Joshua. And now the people are doing it again here in the city of Jerusalem as they are trying to reestablish and rebuild what, what was once there. They're coming out of exile and then they begin to recount the history of their nation 
<clears throat> in this passage. And, and they begin to think of the, the ways that they have offended God. <clears throat> Not just, you know, little offenses, but grievous offenses against God. And how God has responded. And they do all of this because of its significance for their present situation. They begin to take stock and say, here's what God has done in the past, even though we were a sinful people. We realize right now that we're a sinful people, and we're going to beg God to do the same thing he's always done with us, showing us mercy as we move forward. So in a nutshell, they realize they're in desperate need of mercy. They need God's mercy. So they begin to seek God in prayerful repentance as a nation of people. And it's important to note that the prayer here in chapter 9 is the fullest summary. I didn't know this, Ken, until we started dividing this up. It's the fullest summary of the Old Testament anywhere in the Old Testament. So welcome to church. You get the whole Old Testament this morning in Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy passage, and they, he, they summarize the history of their nation as the people of Israel in this entire passage, the longest one about the Old Testament in the Old Testament. And verse 37 sums up where the Israelites were spiritually. It says, we are in great distress. So a question to ponder as we study this morning is where do you turn in times of sin and distress in your life? We don't like to talk about sin and we're, you know, we, we try to compartmentalize that. We try to put it away, but it's something that we have to deal with. It's something we have to drag into the light. How do you deal with the mess your sin has made in your life? choices that you've made that you knew you should not have made that went against what God wanted for you, how do you deal with that mess? So friends, listen, there's good news today for distressed people. So if you're distressed this morning, I'm in that boat with you. We're here together, and we are going to work through what the Lord has for us. If you have made a mess of things in your life, then you are not outside the good news of the gospel. As a matter of fact, you're a great candidate for it. What we see modeled for us in Nehemiah chapter 9 is genuine confession and repentance. They are genuine in what they do. It's a model that we desperately need today. And so, after all, we can make no progress spiritually apart from repenting, from turning away from sin in our life, from turning away from the things that keep us from the best that God has for us. So what I want to do today is I want to consider three key words from this passage. I tried to distill it down. I tried to, to make it something that we could latch onto and take home with us. But there's three key words today from Nehemiah 9 that can help us in times of sin and distress in our lives. And the first one is repent. Second one is remember. And then number three is restore. So repent, remember, restore. All right, three hopefully simple words that we can latch onto. So let's look at that first one there, repent, verses 1 through 5. These verses set the stage, and they set the scene, the tone for the great confession that's going to take place in this passage of Scripture. We see themes of personal reflection, right? They're they're dealing with their their stuff individually, uh, and then they deal with their stuff collectively as a people. And we see God-centered adoration, just being in awe of God, right? Not in awe of the thing He can do for you, but in awe of Him and who He is. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. So let's break that down real quick. Notice that their outer appearance, how they look on the outside, reflected the condition of their heart. 
the condition spiritually in which they were in. This is a serious and emotional thing for them. I mean, fasting, right? They are going without food. They're denying themselves food so that they can focus upon God. Sackcloth. Sackcloth was like wearing a potato sack. Could you imagine that? That would not be very comfortable. I mean, it's irritating to your skin. And, and the idea here is that you want that off of you, right? And so, so the idea is they want this guilt off of them because it's irritating to you. You want to get it off of you. And then dirt upon them, some translations say dirt upon their head or earth upon them, uh, just means that they're, they're lowly. They're in depths of sorrow. It's just a way of, of just, uh, you know, reflecting that outwardly. And so these outward actions reflect the inward need that they were feeling. And this lets us know that the prayers we're about to read is not emotionless, right? It's not just something that, that they are, are doing coldly. It's not something that they're going to hurry through. No, they're broken over their sin. The people of Israel are. This is where restoration begins. This is where we want to see things be restored with the Lord. It has to start in brokenness over sin. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so, friends, listen, confession and repentance is not something that we do at a confession booth. That's not where we do that. It's not where we take care of business. It's not something we do just to check off a box and say, well, glad that's over with. Got that done for the week. You guys ready to go down to uh, Frisch's, <laughs> get a burger? No, we confess our sin to God. That's who you confess to. There is one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ Jesus. That's who we go through. He is the high priest. He is the one who paid the price for our sins. So we confess to him. So when we take confession and repentance lightly, then it shows we don't take our sins seriously. And by extension, we don't take the one whom we have offended seriously. So look at verse 2. It says, The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. What does that mean? There's been a few times, if you've been reading through Nehemiah, it kind of seems like they stiff-arm people who are quote-unquote foreigners. Seems kind of xenophobic, right? It's like, what's the deal with this? And at first glance, it can look that way. Uh, but notice that the people want to confess sin as the people of Israel, right? I don't think that this is an offensive thing that they're trying to do here. They will not only confess their sins, but also the sins of their fathers. And among them were foreigners to them. They were people who were not uh, ethnically Israelites, ethnically Hebrew. Uh, but these people had maybe come in. They had been new to the worship of God. They had dedicated themselves to the Lord. They were proselytites. Uh, they, they were wanting to know God, but they weren't pure descendants, right? And so that means that the people of Israel are essentially saying to them, hey, this is our mess. <laughs> this, is, this is mess that we have created. It's not yours. You don't have to take responsibility for the sins of our fathers. So that's what's going on here. They're saying, listen, this is no offense to you guys, but, but as a people, we offended our, our God, and we are dealing with this on our own. So they separate themselves. Verse 3 says, while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law, right? So the Old Testament. So they, they were reading through the first five books of the Bible there. Book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. So this would have been six hours, 
right? <laughs> and for another fourth, another six hours, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So we see two things here that stem from the reading of the Word of God, from the Word of God being central to this time of confession and repentance. Number one, the Word of God leads to confession. That's what it says in verse 3. With the Word, we are cut to the heart and driven to Jesus. If you're in God's Word, it will convict you. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it will draw you to Him. This is grace. It's not God trying to beat you up. It's not God trying to make you feel terrible. It's God's grace saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to draw you back to myself. Here are things in your life that you need to repent of. And they are taking care of unfinished business here in this portion of Scripture with God because the Word of God is drawing them near. So do you need to do that today? Perhaps you have been convicted about something but having confessed and repented and sought to make things right, maybe with God, maybe with another person in the church, maybe with somebody else in your life. Go before the Lord and make things right today. So the Word of God leads to confession. Number two, the Word of God leads to worship, right? So verses three and four tell us that the Levites now worship God with a loud voice, right? And then verse four says, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever, and ever. Verse 5 there. So notice that they focus their attention upon God because it is Him they seek for restoration. Not somebody else, but Him. And they worship Him for His everlasting nature, right? They worship Him and exalt Him above all. It's important in our prayer life that we include adoration of God as we are praying. I was taught when I was young in the faith, the, the, essentially the acronym, right? Acts, as you are praying, you adore God, you confess your sins, right? You, you thank Him for things, and then you have supplication, which means you just bring your needs before God. So adoration, though, is key to that. So it's important that we include that adoration of God. We should adore God for all that He is. Not what He can do for us, but just who He is. So friends, listen. If we desire holiness and repentance in our life, we must have a heart that adores Jesus and is centered upon Him. That's where that starts. So the first key word that we see here is repent. And to just briefly define that word for you, it just means that you do a 180. You're walking in this direction, and you pivot, and you walk the other direction. You walk away from the thing that is drawing you further and further from Jesus. So repent. Number two, remember. And here's what we're getting into, the bulk of the passage, verses 6 through 31. So one thing that is clear here is the people of Israel viewed God and themselves in light of Scripture. They had a, a Scripture-centered view, right? We would say a biblically-centered view of themselves and God in this moment. They acknowledge how they have rebelled against God, they said, hey, listen, you know, we have completely turned away from you. And they acknowledge who God is and what God has done for them. So in other words, they remember not only how they had sinned in the past, but also how gracious God was toward them. And they remember his grace and his mercy in this time of confession and repentance. And so as we work our way through this chunk of verses, and there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to hit every one. Some of them I will just summarize, but I want you to notice the frequency 
of the pronouns you, your, and yours. Like, just keep a running tally of those. Uh, I found 85 times in this passage that they are used. And each one of them refers to God. So this is about God, right? It's not about us, it's about Him. And 85 times they say something about God doing something for them. And because that's what confession and repentance is truly about, it's about Him. We have offended Him. We have sinned against Him. We turn to Him. He is the one that we have sinned against, the one who we have offended with our rebellion, and the one who shows us grace and mercy. That's who He is. So they remember, and they remember God and His goodness throughout the storyline of Scripture, throughout their history, right, from the beginning into where they are now. So let's start the the recap, shall we, of the Old Testament here. They begin with, number one, God's power. God's power. Verse 6, Nehemiah begins with the power and the uniqueness of God. He says, you alone are the Lord. You alone. This is very important for understanding the creation account in Genesis because we see here that they, they begin with God's power. They begin talking about creation, where they came from, how God put everything into motion. And it's important for understanding the, the creation account in Genesis that, that God is incredibly unique. He is the Lord. He is the God of power. And there's not a God over this, a God over that, a God over the sea, a God over the air. There's none of that right? That's what some people believe, but there is one God over all things, is what Scripture teaches us. And the uniqueness of God has always come under attack. It's always been under attack. It's not something that's unique to our day and age. It still happens today because we live in a pluralistic, superstitious world. And so people see that there are different gods over all this, but God is God, and He is God of all, right? That's who He is. And the prayer continues. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So this is essentially a summary of Genesis 1 and 2 is what's going on here. God in his infinite power made everything. He put everything into order. He made it perfectly, and we know that he was in control. So as a result of him being who he is and doing that, he deserves praise even from the hosts of heaven because that's his creation too. You read in Psalms about how even the, the, the stars, the, the celestial beings, they all are shouting and declaring the glory of God. He is the one who created them. So friends, listen, we should marvel at the wonders of our Creator. We should marvel at His power, His uniqueness. From the majestic sights of the cosmos, this past week, for all my fellow nerd friends, right? If you are a fan of the Lord of the Rings, the James Webb Telescope was just, you know, out there. You guys have heard of the James Webb Telescope, right? Like it's the new telescope that's out there looking at just things that are so far off. And they found, you know, a, a star that is like, I don't know, I forget how many times bigger than the sun. It's so much hotter than the sun, right? And they named it after, you know, the, the, the great star in the Lord of the Rings. And I was just thinking, man, that is amazing. It's the furthest star that they have ever detected from planet Earth. Billions and billions and billions of light years away. That's just a span of from here to here for God. 
right? It's amazing to us, though, from the majestic sights such as that to the microscopic cells in your body that literally hold you together, He is the creator and Lord of all of it. It's all His. Every last square inch, it's all for Him. What a powerful God we serve. They see God's power. They remember God's power. Secondly, they remember God's righteousness. Right? Verses 7 and 8. This is highlighted in the covenant. You know, God's, God's righteousness, they highlight it in the covenant that God made with Abraham. A promise that God made with Abraham. So verse 7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and all the other ites, to give it to his descendants. And here's the key word here, a key phrase. And you have fulfilled your promise. You guys see that? You have fulfilled your promise. Friends, listen, God keeps his promises. What he promises will come to pass. This is a major emphasis in this prayer as they are, are dealing with this sin in their life and how God has been faithful to them in the past, how they desire for him to be faithful to them in the present. And so they emphasize his, his faithfulness, his righteousness. And it should be a major emphasis in our prayer life too. God is faithful because as verse 8 continues, for you are righteous. He is righteous. So underneath everything God does is his righteousness. It undergirds everything. And what does it mean to be righteous? Right? Uh, you know, back in the 90s it meant you were cool, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but, but you ask people what it means to be righteous and they might tell you a different thing. But at the basic level, it means doing what is right. It's what makes you righteous. You do the right thing. And God always does what is right. He always does the right thing. He is perfectly just. He always acts consistently with his character, who he has shown himself to be to us in his word. And keep his righteousness in mind as we continue because there's going to be a tension revealed in that God is both merciful and righteous as we go on. So they remember God's power, God's righteousness. Thirdly, they remember God's provision right? Verses 9 through 15. These next few verses are all about the provision of God for his people throughout their history. Provision of freedom from slavery, uh, provision of freedom from harm from enemies, and sustenance throughout their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So just to briefly summarize the section, verse 9, God saw the affliction of his people, right? We, we learned about that in Exodus chapter 2. He heard about them groaning, and he went to go save them. Also, he heard their cry at the Red Sea, verse 9, verse 10. In between all of this came the ten plagues. And through these plagues, God made a name for himself. He was a God of power not to be trifled with. Even Egypt's very powerful magicians couldn't pull off the tricks. And, and they, they realized real quickly that this is, this is real. This is a God that is in control of everything. Why is all this important? Well, again, because Nehemiah and the people of Israel are in present distress. Keep that in mind. In, in the present in which they are praying this, they are in crisis over their sin. God had responded previously to Israel's affliction, and now they're asking him to do it again. Do it again, Lord. Verse 11, they reflect on the Red Sea. Verse 12, they reflect on God's miraculous leading of them. Verse 13 talks about Sinai, which is Exodus 19 through 20. 
They have the law of God, this gift from God. Verse 14 talks about how God gave them a good gift in the Sabbath. And the Levites highlight this law as another profound expression of God's kindness and and giving the people rest. God was kind to them. Verse 15 talks about God's provision in the wilderness, right? God cared for them all the way to the promised land, showing divine love and hospitality. We learned about this last year as we went through the book of Joshua. Now you might be thinking, well, so what, Brandon? (laughs) I mean, God never dropped bread from the sky for me. He never gave me manna. He never gave me quail from heaven. Well, this was a special moment. Because if you remember in Joshua 5, when they entered the land, we read that the manna ceased. It stopped. And they ate the produce of the land. But it was still God's provision. God provided for them. Even though it stopped coming from heaven, he provided for them from the fruit of the land into which he had led them. So whether God provides through a paycheck, an apple tree, Uh, the supermarket, or the bread of angels from heaven, it's still his provision. It's his grace in your life. And we need to remember that. We remember God's provision. So they remember the power, the righteousness, the provision of God. Finally, they remember God's mercy. And here's where we're going to camp out for just a few minutes. Verses 16 through 31. What happens next is a series of reflections on how Israel sinned against God and how God responded in, mercifully, in mercy and discipline, right? Not just he let them off the hook. There was some discipline. There was consequences for their actions. But they go through, and, and there's six of these cycles, right? So this is really the heart of their appeal. So the first cycle, verse 16 and 17, you see the rebellion here is where they had a stiffened neck, says they stiffened their necks. This is when they made the calf, when Moses was up on the mountain. Remember that? They made the golden calf and said, this is our God that delivered us from Egypt. And they bowed down to worship it. And Aaron didn't do anything to, to stop them. So they stiffened their neck despite God's redemption. So in other words, they acted like the calf they worshiped, right? So I've heard my grandfather talk about growing up on a farm back years ago and you know trying to put a harness and a yoke on an animal that didn't want to be yoked they would stiffen their neck and they would make it difficult and you couldn't you couldn't quite harness their potential and so it's the same thing here so they had become like the calf they had worshiped and they picked that up in verse 18 and so friends listen you become like that which you worship that happens you become like what you worship they returned to slavery. Verse 17, it's what they says. They returned to slavery. They began to bow down in sin because sin is slavery. That's what it is. But we see the mercy in verse 17, the second half of it. it says, but you are God. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. I love that. There's the good news there. Friends, listen, our God is merciful. He's compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant, abundant in grace and mercy. And he hasn't just said that he is this, he has demonstrated it. This isn't just him saying, this is who I am. He is is proving that is who he is. Where sin abounds, as Paul said, grace abounds all the more. Another way of saying that is grace super abounds, right? And that is where we find our hope. So that's cycle one. Cycle two, we see the rebellion, verse 18, they made that calf committed blasphemy. 
is another thing they did here. In the mercy, verses 19 through 25, God did not forsake them. We see God's remarkable provision for them. He, he kept giving them food and drink despite their idolatry. He kept loving them and taking care of them. And what, what gets me is if you, if you read through this section, it talks about how they didn't have any blisters on their feet and their feet didn't swell from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. Think about that. Anybody here ever had their, their, their ankles swell up from just like taking a walk, right? <laughs> or trying to go shoot basketball with your kids out back, right? Um, yeah, like it would be quite awesome to not have any of those uh, problems, right, with, with your feet. Your podiatrist would be very happy with, with this uh, blessing. But they didn't have any of this. They lacked nothing, yet appreciated nothing at the same time. So they're remembering that rebellion, but they see God's mercy. They're reflecting on God's response as the basis for their present appeal. In verses 22 through 25, basically we come to the book of Joshua, to the conquest of the land. Now they reflect on their undeserved inheritance, this thing that God had given them. God had promised to give this land to Abraham, and he did. Verse 25, they talk about his great goodness. God gave them everything they could ever want. He fulfilled all of his promises. He released them from slavery and provided them with all these good things. And then we see cycle number three, verses 26 and 27. The rebellion here, verse 26, they responded to the gift of the land the same way they had responded to being freed from Egypt. Rebellion turning back toward their sin. Verse 26 takes us to the end of Joshua and leads us into the book of Judges and beyond. And we see, uh, you know, it's looking forward to the period of the kings with the mention of the prophets here in this section. So in light of all of God's goodness, this was their response to, to rebel. But before we become too critical of these people, we must remember ourselves. It's easy for us to armchair quarterback and look back and say, well, they were dumb. They were stupid. Look what God did for them. Why didn't they act better? Why weren't they more appreciative? Before we go down that avenue, we have to remember that like them, our sin, too, has taken place in the face of God's expression of goodness. Every sin we've ever committed is in the face of God's goodness. Our sin is defiant. It's arrogant. It's stiff-necked. And it's rebellious. It's as though we say to God, I don't care. I don't care what you have done for me. I don't care what you have given me in my life. I don't care that you've given me clothing. I don't care that you've given me home. I don't care that you've given me a family and friends and kids and food. I don't care that you've given me the gospel. I don't care. I just want to do me. I want to do what I want to do. But we see the mercy here, verse 27. This time they received discipline, right? And then mercy in the giving of the judges. The judges came and ruled over them, and there are seven of these cycles in the book of Judges where people just continue to sin, and then they, they cry out to God for help, and then he sends a deliverer to help them. It all points to Jesus. It all points to him. Cycle number four, verse 28, the rebellion there. After a period of peace and rest, there in the book of Judges, Israel went right back into their sin. 
And then the mercy in 28, you see God delivered them after another period of discipline. He delivered them in his mercy. And notice that the Levites are using the same language of mercy and compassion as the basis for their appeal in, in this prayer here. They're looking for God's help in their time of distress, the present time that they are in. Fifth cycle, you see the rebellion in 29 through 30. This is a period of the prophets during the reign of the kings. So we're in the book of Kings now, First and Second Chronicles. They warned Israel to turn back to the law. It's what the prophets were doing. They were saying, repent, turn back to the law, turn back to God. But the people would not obey. And we see mercy in verse 30. It says, however, right? Nehemiah writes, you, God, bore with them for many years. And admonish them by your spirit through your prophets. He put up with them for years and continued to send people to speak truth into their life. And they still rebelled. But what mercy we see there. What patience we see there. God is long-suffering and patient with us. Then this final cycle we see is in verses 30 and 31. The rebellion here is, yet they would not give ear. They wouldn't listen. So God gave them into the hand of the people that were there to persecute them. And now we're at the period of the exile. We're leading up to where they are at in their present day. They were exiled, but not forsaken, because we see mercy in verse 31. It says, in your great compassion, God had compassion on them. That's what they are banking on now. They're wanting more of God's compassion and mercy for their present appeal. Lamentations 3, verses 22, it says, Because of your great mercy, we are not cut off. So friends, listen, for, for confession and repentance to be genuine in our lives, we must acknowledge our sin rightly and see God rightly. We have to, to treat it seriously. No attempts at positive spin, right? We're not trying to write a good headline so that we can get clicks on social media. We're trying to be honest. When the Spirit produces genuine confession and genuine repentance, you can't keep people from Jesus. They are cut to the heart and repent. So we see here that they have remembered. So back to our key words. We have seen repentance, we have seen remembrance, and then finally the last one is restore. They are seeking restoration, verses 32 through 38. This prayer now gets painfully personal. They accept complete ownership for their sins. They say, this is our mess. We have, we have caused this. As Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2 say, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. They are begging God at this point. So look at verse 32. It says, Now therefore, because of all that we just said, God... That's what therefore means. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. So despite Israel's history of rebellion, God has been patient and merciful to them. The Levites now ask God to be merciful again. Verse 33, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. See that? They say, we deserved what happened to us, God. We are repenting and asking for forgiveness. 
For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Verse 34, for our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. They're owning it. They're saying, we know that our, 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 our fathers and our forefathers really screwed up here. So they know that God has not acted wrongly. God has been right in all that he has done. They have been wicked. Everyone had sinned, but God was good to them. God was good despite this lifetime of failures that they have had. Verse 36, Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. What a heartbreaking statement. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Everything, God, that you gave us that's good, we have, we have handed over to the enemy now. They also rule over our bodies, over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. You guys feel the weight of that statement now? I highlighted it at the beginning. But now we get all the way to the end of this prayer. And you feel the distress. Like walking in this all week, preparing and studying for this, it was just like, man, I feel the distress here. Like this is, this is a time of distress. And, and yes, it's time to repent and turn to God. Here they describe their own situation. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, but God delivered them, right? We, we celebrate that. They are asking God to deliver them again. For God to show mercy to them again. He has heard their cries of distress before. Now please hear it again, is what they are saying. Verse 38, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So they come to the end of this prayer. And the Levites come up with a specific application point for themselves. And they have talked about God's dealings with, with them as a rebellious people. They are prepared to make a covenant, right? Prepared to make a promise with God and keep it. And we're going to look at that next week. That's chapter 10. But to wrap this up, how does this passage apply to us today? Like, it's one thing to look back and say, okay, I, I, I see these people praying and I see them repenting, but how does that apply to us today? Should we retell the story of God's mercy? Should we repent and plead for mercy and resolve to do better? Well, yes and no. Yes, we should prayerfully reflect on the biblical storyline of our own restoration. Tell people about your testimony. Tell people how God saved you, how he reached down and rescued you. You always want to do that. People can't argue with what God has done for you. They might debate you on scripture. They might debate you on other points of theology, but they cannot argue with what God has done in your life. That is always something that you can share with people. It's a great pattern to remember that. But no, if you stop at the Old Testament. <laughs> if we just, you know, stop where they stop today, it, it's not really that great of news, right? We must continue the narrative forward to Jesus, always pointing toward him. We make our plea on the basis of the gospel, what Jesus has done, on the basis of what Christ has done for us in our place. When we are begging God, we have Jesus in the mix where they didn't have that. 
They had a broken system of sacrifice. We have Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. So friends, listen. If we don't move to the coming of Christ, to his death and resurrection, then we will just repeat the cycle. It will be a continuous cycle. They just told a story that essentially says, it's not going to work. We have messed this up every time. Do you see how that points to one that's needed, that's greater? It's Jesus. We just learned about six cycles of rebellion. What do we say? We're number seven? But now, because of Jesus, we can repent. We can press on in commitment because we are forgiven. We are forgiven by him, and we know God won't crush us because he crushed him for us. He was in our place. He paid that sin debt that we never could pay. He took on the entirety of sin for everyone who will believe. So now we can say in Christ Jesus, this cycle has been broken. We can rest in him. So what do we, what do we learn about prayer from this passage? If we're going to be intentional about praying in our lives, just real quickly, some points of application. What do we learn about prayer? Well, number one, pray passionately. Don't just talk about prayer or read about prayer, right? Uh, but actually pray. And, and I'm preaching to myself right now. Think about this. This God wants to talk with you. I'm sure some people don't want to talk with you. But this God wants to talk to you, right? God does. Prayer is not something to check off a daily checklist, but an opportunity to meet with God, to meet with the creator of all things. As I've heard some older saints say before, pray until you have prayed. <laughs> like, used to when I was a kid, I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm praying right now. But I, now, as I've grown older, I'm like, yeah, you pray until you've prayed. You pray. So we pray passionately. Number two, you pray biblically, right? So friends, listen, if you will pray the scriptures, you will have a lot to pray for right? You can pray the scriptures. Your prayers will also be God-centered if you do that. When you read the Bible and pray in light of it, it keeps your prayers from going in weird directions and bad directions. Just in this prayer alone, what we just read, this passage of scripture, which is a prayer, it's like we had somebody's prayer journal in front of us, in this prayer alone, we have seen God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's uniqueness, God's creation, God's redemption, God's provision, God's goodness, His grace, His patience, and on and on and on. It's all here. And theologians have written entire books on just one of those attributes of God. So if you pray Scripture, look at the richness that you have to fuel your prayers. Turn to the book of Psalms. What day of the month is it? I don't know. Today is, is whatever, the, the, the 17th, 18th. I have no idea. Go to Psalm 17, read that, and pray through that. It's a way that you can do that. There's a lot you can pray for in light of Scripture when you have an open Bible. So you pray biblically. Number three, you pray honestly. As you pray in light of Scripture, Scripture keeps you honest. It reveals your sins. That's why as a preaching team, we have decided we're just going to go through books of the Bible because that makes you deal with hard things. You can't just jump over it. You can't just talk about what you want to on any given Sunday. You, you go through the hard things. And the same can be said when you're praying. It keeps you honest, and you need to be honest about your sin. We don't like talking about sin. You want to know why? Because we're sinners. We don't like it. For prayer to be life-changing, it's got to be honest. 
We have to be honest in our prayer lives. But that's hard for us to do when we like to present ourselves in the best possible light. When we live in a culture that has all these filters to put on your photos to make you look the best you, the best version of yourself on social media, that's where we live in this day and age. We have to be honest. Biblical honesty is hard because we don't like to admit and own responsibility for our sins. We prefer to minimize sin, to manage it, to keep it hidden away, to, to rename it, to redefine it, to shift the blame to somebody else because of it. Everything but just saying, this is what it is and it's mine and I've got to own it. So in other words, we will do anything to keep from taking ownership of it. But we don't just stop with honest confession. We move to this next point of application. We pray repentantly. We talked about that was one of our key words, repent. Repentance is not just admitting our sin. It involves putting it to death and living a different life. You have to turn in the opposite direction. Repentance is incomplete if it doesn't include a changed life that results in obedience. Not perfection, but obedience. Understand that, please. We are not perfect. We are going to mess up. But what's important is that we try to act in a life of obedience. We have new patterns of obedience brought about by God's grace, enabled by His Spirit within us to help us along because we can't do this on our own. Real repentance is seeking this restored fellowship with God. Restoration being restored back to him. And then finally, we pray hopefully. So friends, listen. If you are in sin and distress today, there's hope because of what Jesus did. Because of what he did. What the Spirit is doing now, in this moment in your life, and how much God loves you. There's hope in all of that. You can always pray and repent in hope because you have hope in Jesus. He will never leave you or forsake you. And he paid for every last bit of your sin on that cross. So walk in that today. Pray. Pray biblically. Pray honestly. Pray repentantly. And you will begin to sense joy, the joy of restoration and renewal in your life. Pour out your heart in honest confession to Jesus. Turn from that sin and real repentance and believe that Jesus is better than that sin. Again, I'm preaching to myself this morning. So listen, obedience to Jesus leads to joy and fulfillment. It's not like God wants to take away all the fun things in our life. If we turn to him, we will see that there's so much joy and fulfillment in following after him than what this world could ever give us. So repent out of the love for a Savior who poured out his soul, who poured out his soul to death for sinners like us, who promises a new heaven and a new earth where we will never sin again. Amen. Hallelujah. Man, that's going to be a great day. No matter who you are, whether you're a believer, a non-believer, a skeptic, no matter who you are today, my plea to you is repent. Consider what God is doing in your heart right now. Lay down the things he's asking you to lay down. Give your heart to him if he is asking you, if he's tugging you to, to repent and turn to him today, whatever it might be. My prayer is that in this time, we would genuinely confess and repent as we return to him in worship. So let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for your word and passages from your word that deal with so much. God, thank you for showing us your faithfulness today, how you were good to a people who constantly spurned you and constantly rejected you. God, yes, you disciplined them, but you disciplined them in love. You continued to bless them and give them things that they didn't deserve. And yet, overwhelmingly, many of them continued to choose other things other than you. But God, you have shown mercy to them and you show mercy to us today. So help us in this time of repentance, this time of drawing near to you. God, I pray that we would confess and repent. And I pray today would be a day where we would walk in the spirit and in the newness of life. God, help us as we pursue you in this life. Help us to know that we will never be perfect until we reach the other side with you, but you can help us to be obedient and grow in you day in and day out. And God, I pray that today we would all make a commitment to do that. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things.